And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Kubrider Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Kubrider, and today we'll be covering McConnell vows that he's going to finish out his term as minority leader and will serve out his current term as senator until 2027. As long as we are playing make-believe, let's explore an interesting question. Will Andy Bashir or Daniel Cameron, if he wins, appoint themselves as senator? We'll also take a look at exploring uh, what are smart cities, as several Kentucky cities are attending the Smart City Expo in Raleigh, North Carolina, which begs the question, what is a so-called smart city and should we be concerned about it? Then finally, California has issued guidelines saying they will boycott Kentucky companies and refuse to pay for state employees to travel here because of legislation Kentucky has passed on social issues. This has been going on for several years. Yet that doesn't stop Kentucky from awarding millions to Californian companies. We will explore why all here today on the Andrew Kubrider Show. But of course, before we dig into it, make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you're listening to this on Facebook or Twitter, make sure you hit that share button, hit that reaction button, leave your comments as you're watching, and express your opinions. And if you're listening on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or Rumble or any of those places, and you would like to check out the podcast itself, feel free to follow it on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, iHeart, uh, Pandora, all other major podcasting platforms. However, without further ado, let's dig down into it. So uh, about last week-ish or so, McConnell was challenged on his health by reporters and was asked the important, the, the, the billion-dollar question, um, are you stepping down or retiring? What are you do- doing with the rest of your term? Uh, let's hear what he has to say. Do you have any plans to retire anytime soon? <laughs> I have no announcements to make on that subject. Well, what do you say to those who uh, I'm going to finish my term as leader and I'm going to finish my senator. All right, there you have it from him. He's going to finish his term as leader. He's going to finish his Senate term. And that's what he had to say. Now, the question is, um, will he actually? I mean, I can promise you this. If Bashir is still in office, that man will definitely hang on for as long as he can. And if he's the majority leader after 2024, if Republicans grab enough seat, in the Senate uh, there, the federal Senate there, and he can be made leader. That man will run again in 2026. I promise you, it it leaves your mind. You're like, how can that be? But you got to think he is a, a, you know, Obama called him, what is it? Bitter clingers. He's a bitter clinger to power. And if he thinks he's going to be the majority leader, he's running again because, well, why not? I mean, if he wanted to retire, he could have done so long ago. He could have not ran, of course, during this last session. So he's going to hang on. Now, if Cameron wins and he doesn't feel super confident about getting to be the leader in 2024, then I think he may just step down so he can appoint his replacement. Understand, is the most McConnell and McConnellite establishmenty thing to do to not actually allow something as important like a federal Senate seat go up to a primary vote where voters actually get to make a decision without an incumbent being involved. They're going to do everything they can to affect the outcome of that election. And they will do that by trying to appoint whom they want uh, going into the election as the incumbent. And so they're going to try to hold on to power as much as possible. And if he thinks and McConnellites and the establishment people around him think that they can hold on to power longer by handpicking a successor, then he could by just staying in office himself. Well, then that's what he will do. 
And if he thinks he needs to stay in office in order to maintain the power, well, then he'll do that. But as long as we're off in speculation land, let's ask ourselves, let's say McConnell resigns or passes away while Bashir's in office, whether that is the next few months or if Bashir wins re-election, well, who is Bashir going to appoint? Well, the most obvious answer to this is Bashir himself. There is nothing exactly stopping him from doing so other than the pesky law passed back in 2021 that will be challenged on its constitutionality merits should this come up. Um, that And that law requires a governor to pick from three people in the office holder's party. So whoever held the office, passes away, retires, then the governor has to pick from three people within that office holders party. So Bashir will try to challenge this. And if it is overturned and he's able to just appoint himself, he certainly will appoint himself. I mean, his reasoning to the Democrat party of Kentucky is simple. You all are a bunch of losers who couldn't hold on to this seat anyway. The only Dim who's won in Kentucky in non-liberal areas is me. And so I can hold on to the seat and an argument that gets even stronger if he wins uh, re-election against Cameron. Now, if Bashir can't come, uh, can't overcome that law, well, then who's he going to appoint? Well, depend a lot upon who the Republican Party of Kentucky chooses. Based on current behavior, Trey Grayson seems, he's a former Secretary of State, uh, seems to be coming out of the woodwork and tagging along a lot with Mitch, popping up at events that normally he wouldn't. Perhaps he's trying to score that spot. Some other names that, uh, you know, get tossed around is people like Ryan Quarles, but I think he wants to stay in the state. Uh, several people have mentioned to me Andy Barr as a McConnell replacement because he's certainly very establishment-y and would fall kind of right in line there. So maybe they would go for him as a replacement. Uh, whoever RPK, Republican Party of Kentucky, wants, we know how they will get them there. So they'll pick the person that they really want, and then they'll pick two other people, which they believe be Bashir would never pick so they can get their choice in there. What if Cameron is the governor, though? Would he appoint himself? Assuming, of course, Republican Party of Kentucky would put him forward as one of the three, which if he was governor and wanted to be in that spot, they would appoint him, certainly. I mean, let's, or they would throw him into that three pick. I mean, let's be honest here. The state party is a vehicle for the governor. Uh, if it's if the sitting governor is a governor of that party, that state party just becomes a vehicle for the governor. I mean that he's just the de facto party leader in his state. So if he wants in the in those three picks, he'll end up in the three. But will Cameron want to be in those three? Now Cameron was specifically asked uh, about this Senate seat. Uh, if you remember during the debates and things, he has essentially brushed it off and he's claimed he's going to serve out this decade as governor. Should he win, he's going to serve out the decade as governor. But to be honest, he has said similar things before he's gone back on. If you'd remember while he was running for attorney general, he promised that he'd serve eight years there because he, he kept attacking people that would serve in the internal general's office and then treat it like a stepping stone and he wouldn't do that well it turns out what do we see um he uses a stepping stone to try to run for governor so i mean we can't exactly take that as its face value so let's look at actions or reasons why cameron would want it and not now the obvious reason why these career politicians want to be senator is simply it's an easier ride you get a six-year term and of course you have no term limits no running every four years or two years and essentially as long as you don't lose chaining yourself you'll get to hold office forever because well voters will just keep voting for the same people even if it's clearly not in their best interests so the reason why he'd want it is obvious 
here's the reason why he maybe wouldn't want it. First, he is a family, and his wife is pretty heavily involved with his campaign, with his political world. Uh, running back and forth to D.C. while also having a child is just not very appealing to certainly people who like to stay together like that as a family. Either Cameron's wife will have to stay home and Cameron then four days a week, three days a week pretty much will be in D.C. or uh, she will have to go with him. If she wants to be with him, she would be with him, obviously. But then you got to lug those kids back and forth. And that makes it really, really hard to raise a family with any kind of continuity. And so a lot of speculation too over Cameron running says it was Cameron's wife is the one who kind of gave him the little push to run for governor. She didn't like the cinder path for him right now because of what I just spoke about. And plus the governor's office does come with a actual title for the spouse as long as well as an office and a staff and a budget. And you just don't get that same kind of honorifics and taxpayer funds to play with when you're senator. Also for Cameron, uh, well, when your spouse is senator. Also for Cameron, um, if he wins, he obviously has a potential, pretty good potential to be there for eight years. That would take him to the end of 2031. Paul, Senator Paul's term is up in uh, 2028. He'd be 65 at this time, I do believe. Um, and even if he runs for fourth fourth term, that means he would be ending up getting out of the political game at 71, 72. He'd be uh, where he ends up now running for what would be a fifth term. I just don't see Paul running past that. I don't, he doesn't strike me as a power clinger. I don't see him running again, especially as he gets up into his seventies at that point, uh, for that fifth term. Um, you know, after, after doing a fourth term, I just don't see it. And he's just not a power cleaner like we see with McConnell as much. And so that puts the seat as open and up for election in 2034. Realistically, that's only two years after Cameron's governor term ends. And, well, he maybe thinks that he can run for senator at that point because he'll be looking at it and saying, well, you know, Paul will be uh, uh, out. He's out for election because obviously, like I said, 2031 is when Paul would run again for another six years or till the end of 31. So 32, he'd run again uh, for six years. Um, and then if he doesn't run there, well, then, you know, there you go. The seat now uh, comes up for that, that, open election um, there in 34 because I'm sorry, Paul runs for reelection in 28 and then 34 um, because he just ran in 2022. So it's a six year term. Um, and so that would only put Cameron uh, out of office, out of being special, out of being that governor uh, for what, like two years before he then jumps in there. So while Cameron could appoint himself, would he? I wouldn't be shocked if he did, but I would be a little surprised when you look at how that's kind of playing out for him, mixed with the motivations for why he's doing what he's doing now. Okay, so coming up after this, Fort Thomas and Paducah have signed up to attend a Smart Cities conference there in May of 2024. We'll go over what Smart Cities are right after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So the Kentucky cities of Fort Thomas and Paducah have signed up to attend a conference in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, for Smart City. So obviously, um, with this conference too not occurring until 2024, spring of 2024, I think we're going to see a few more Kentucky cities go ahead and sign up to go. But that does leave the question, what is a smart city? Well, I, I thought maybe to help me explain this, I could go to a friendly and warm video from our friends over at the Department of Homeland Security. Let's take a listen to what DHS uh, has to say about smart cities. What does the city of the future look like? How will it respond to challenges of urbanization, evolving threats and aging infrastructure? The Science and Technology Directorate is building that future today. Many threats, old and new, require governments to think and act differently. In response, smart city initiatives are fundamentally changing the way communities will operate. ST is working with industry and government to assess the needs and develop the systems to create innovative smart city resilient solutions. By using Internet of Things technologies and data analytics, Cities will identify emerging crises, evaluate them, and then appropriately respond with a speed and efficiency unthinkable only a generation ago. With your help, we will make our communities smarter, stronger, and more resilient. Unthinkable only a few years ago. Now, of course, DHS. Nice video, really warm, friendly. Um, you know, anybody who watches, of course, any kind of dystopian futures would uh, be a little bit suspicious with that video. But anyways, um, now smart cities are being sold as a better way to plan and respond to citizens' needs for things like power, water, policing, trash. Uh, but that'd leave you to wonder if that's what it's about, power and water and and sewers and trash and, and public transportation. Why is the Department of Homeland Security involved with the thought processes and implementation of smart cities? Shouldn't that perhaps be, I don't know, in the... Um, I don't know, in the infrastructure cabinet or departments such as that, if it's really just about creating better cities? Well, uh, let's look at some of the devices that smart cities say that they use. One of the first types of devices that you'll see uh, these smart cities talking about, should you decide to research these and uh, because you're a nerd like me and you decide you want to look up what smart cities are doing, uh, you'll find a lot of big deals being in attention, being paid to, de to devices that center around energy and utilities. These so-called smart devices that can read usage and automatically turn things off in order to save energy and promote equity and social justice. Now, this should hopefully raise some eyebrows because what does electricity, gas, water usage, trash, all those things have to do with social justice? But when we tie that in with these devices that don't just read what's going on and then supply data, but can actually even remotely turn things off. Now you have questions. 
I mean, let's say the system and eggheads decide that, well, you know, we're going to determine that this part of town that is predominantly white is simply using more water per capita than this part of town, which is predominantly minority. And if you want to use these smart cities and these devices to create this equity and social justice, when it comes to water use, like these pushers claim to want to, and I'm not just cooking this up as an example, they literally talk about utility usage like water and then promoting a more equitable and social justice framework around water usage. Well, unless you're talking about how do we increase overall water usage, which if you're that's what you're, or increase overall water to be available for people to usage, well, that's one thing, but that has nothing to do with smart devices that can remotely turn things off. The only reason why you'd want smart devices that can remotely turn off utilities is if you plan on limiting them. And that makes sense when you think about what equity does. It's not about equality. It doesn't mean equal opportunity. What equity does, it means equal outcome. And if there is an area, if every area isn't receiving the same amount of water, well, that's not an equitable outcome. Therefore, people have to be throttled. And if you somehow can tie this into skin color, well, now you only have a few solutions to how to solve these mean old white people using too much water. You're either going to have to physically move people where neighborhoods now turn into a check sheet of saying, oh, sorry, you can't live here. We have filled our minority or white quota of who's allowed to live here. You got to go find somewhere else until every neighborhood has a uniform percentages and demographic of people living there with the right skin hue and sexuality. Or you're going to have to shut off water to people based upon their skin color. And with smart cities, it gives you the ability to track and do that. Now, at least you think this is just about controlling how much of your basic necessities in life smart cities are able uh, to, to take away from you or control. This is also about encouraging wide uh, wide-reaching surveillance nets. Um, that's one of the other key things that you'll see with these smart cities. They talk a lot about putting up cameras and analyzing data, not just to solve crime, they do say that, but to also study people's movements so you can better program them to create easier pedestrian flow or to encourage public transit. Now, this goes hand-in-hand, -hand, of course, with 15-minute cities. For those of you who are unaware of what 15-minute cities are, 15-minute cities is where city planners are attempting to make everybody live, work, play, and exist within a 15-minute walk or 15-minute public trans, uh, transit, so like a bus ride or uh, a subway away from everything. All this because if you climb into a car and you decide to turn it on and press the gas, you are quite clearly destroying the world. I understand that perhaps people can be well-intentioned, but when you start deciding to track what people are doing so you can improve them, well, you start believing that you can be a central planner, that you can be a puppeteer, and everybody is nothing but your puppets. And you start believing you can make better choices for people. You make assumptions that people want what you want. They they want to live in a world where they can walk to what they get. They want to live in a world where they have no cars. They want to live in a world where they're in an apartment because that's what you want. But you don't stop to ask yourself, is that what they really want? Instead, you decide you're going to try to manipulate them and force them into it. We hear people say you will have own nothing and you will like it. And that seems to be a more common and common thing. But when you start believing you can make better choices for people and you start making assumptions, 
Well, now you're forced to have to manipulate people. And they can't do it with force necessarily in America quite as much because obviously we are still an armed population. So instead, they're resorting to things like smart cities, smart devices, in order to try to manipulate people into doing and behaving the way they want them to. Understand this. I want to live in a free world, not a world where I'm manipulated into thinking I am free. So please be on the lookout for smart city initiatives in your area. Because like I said, we're already seeing some Kentucky sittings making a push. They're going to these expos, these conferences, everything else. So stay aware and stay alert about what's going on. You hear people talk about smart cities. Please stand up and say something. Because a lot of times people nod their head. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. Without bothering to ask what's really going on. All right, so coming up after this, we're going to talk about why Kentucky keeps doing business with California, even though California has said they will stop and never, ever, ever do business with us again until we change our laws. We'll have more after this. So California, over the last few years, has decided they no longer want to do business with Kentucky. And this is because of the laws that we've passed on uh, social issues that they disagree with. Laws about abortion, transgender kids, chopping genitalia off minors, all those things. And so California has said, and the, and the government there has actually issued a directive saying they will not pay for any uh, government employees to travel to Kentucky. And the state of California would no longer issue contracts to Kentucky companies. So no longer would they uh, allow any of their state departments to hire companies that are based in Kentucky. All this to punish us, um, not because we're doing anything that affects them, but because we're just simply have a different viewpoint on some issues because that's the word world California wants to live in. They want to live in a world where everybody's forced into the same viewpoint. And you'd say if we want to fight this, we'd want to fight fire with fire. We would want to say, well, fine, California, you don't want to do business with us. We will no longer do business with you. In fact, if a lot of these states, uh, they, there are several states California has said they'll refuse to do business with, if they come together and start locking out Californian companies from doing business with their states in retaliation to California, not initiating it, but saying, look, as soon as California lifts the ban, we'll lift your ban. You're allowed to come back here and do work. You might see a push from business owners and people in California to see a change, but not the case. So, uh, and, and so despite the fact that, that California is attacking us, Kentucky still does business with California. And this came up in a recent meeting of the contract review committee, uh, there in the legislature. Now, first, let me explain what this committee is, what the legislature can do with it. So this committee reviews every contract that is issued by our state government. They then vote to approve or disapprove these contracts. First, they go through the list and they'll pull out contracts that they know they're going to want to discuss on. And then they'll do something called a unanimous consent on all the others where essentially they, they don't need to vote on each contract. They just say all these contracts are good. Send them through. And then the contracts that they've pulled out that they believe there might be an issue on, they then uh, will have an individual votes on and they will end up calling for the, the cabinet or the department that's issuing the contract. They'll call them in in order to ask them questions about the contract before they approve it or disapprove it. Now, if the committee votes down a contract, it goes over to the, uh, or has at least priorly gone over to the finance cabinet and can be vetoed. And then that contract just continues on. So it'd go over to essentially the Bashir administration and it can be vetoed. Then when the legislature does come back into session, they could always pass a new law saying that 
the the uh, all the contracts the contract review committee looked at and disapproved are hereby no longer in effect uh, and they will be canceled in the next 30 days. You had to rebid them, whatever. And that could be a way to kind of deal with that. Now we've seen, of course, our legislature falter on doing that um, and not really being as strong with it as they could uh, because obviously they have complete control of the purse string, so they could do that. Um, but yet they have faltered to do so. And the reason why I think we'll go into what we're going to discuss about what happened here in a second, I think that will kind of be self-explanatory as to why they refuse to do this. And uh, surprise, surprise, because they lack a spine. But anyways, but recently they passed a new law saying that the state treasurer would be the one to approve or disapprove the contracts once the committee has approved them. So the committee approves them, they're approved. If the committee disapproves them, it would go then to the state treasurer, and then the state treasurer would either approve or disapprove the contract. But of course, pushing that out to the state treasurer is being challenged in court. Um, and, you know, there may be a way to do it constitutionally as it's ruled against or what have you. But even if slash when the committee votes have been overturned by essentially the governor, as I said, the legislature could still come in when they come back into session and vote to end the contracts. Because remember, the legislature has complete control over the purse strings. So this committee reviews contracts and then votes to approve or disapprove. If they disapprove. It's the first step then in possibly ending uh, the the first step in deciding to go ahead and not issue the contract. We're going to listen to a vote on a contract. And this particular contract was a $1 million HR consultant contract where the consulting company, the HR consulting company is based out of California. So, so this is a contract to send a million dollars to a HR group that's in California, probably the last place I would want HR consultants to come from. But anyways, let's go ahead. Let's take a listen to how this voting goes. If there's no further questions, do I have a motion to consider the contract reviewed without objection? I make a motion. I have a motion by Representative Chester Burton of approval. Second. Uh, second by uh, Co-Chair Meredith. All in favor vote aye. All opposed vote no. Clerk, please call the roll. Senator Boswell? No. Senator Douglas? I have a comment on my vote, Mr. Mr. Yes, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> we are where we are today. But I think, I think united we stand, divided we fall, is not just a bunch of words. And I'm tired of that being a bunch of words when it comes to our three branches of government, which are co-equal. I think what, we, what our charge is and what we're elected to do uh, by our constituents is do what is best for the Commonwealth. And that means standing up against others who would otherwise try to do us harm in any way so that we can all across, across our states stand on an equal footing. I, I, I would like to see all our branches of government take, take that kind of a stance and say, if you're not interested in playing ball with us fairly, then perhaps we need to have a different conversation. Again, I'm, I'm voting aye, yes, but, but, but I do think that I do think the people elected us to do more than sit on our hands and, and just say, okay, let's do this. Thank you, Mr. Co-Chair. Thank you. Senator Thomas. Aye. Representative Chester Burton. Yes. Representative McCool. No. Representative Pollock. 
Yes. Chairman Meredith. Swim my vote, Mr. Chair. Yes, go ahead. I vote no, principally because um, if good men and women stand by to do nothing, then evil will always prevail. And I think for a state that wants to protest legislation that does not impact them whatsoever is evil. And I don't think we need to reward bad behavior. And that's exactly what we do. I don't know how else to send the message back to California that this is not acceptable. And as, since they have set this precedent, what other legislation will we pass in the future that they may not like that they'll take additional actions against our state? I think this can be very easily resolved if um, governors will speak to governors and say uh, this is not appropriate. So again, my vote is no. Chairman Hart. Uh, no. Uh, we have a vote is four to four, so the contact will move forward. And thank you for your or for or your comments and for coming today. All right. So before I dig into necessarily everything that just happened in the video and explain and everything else, I need to immediately right off the bat correct something that Cinder Douglas said. Now, for those of you who know, obviously, my history, I ran against Cinder Douglas in a primary, and uh, it, it was while he was an incumbent. I got 45% of the vote there. Uh, they had outspend me five, six to one in order to keep him there. And part of the reason why he was so weak is because Douglas doesn't really know a lot about government. He just doesn't. And there's something he said there that really betrays it. And it's a little bit alarming that a senator uh, doesn't know this. And that is we do not have three co-equal branches of government. The legislature, the branch of the people, is supposed to be significantly more powerful than the others. They are not co-equal. The legislature is more powerful than all the other three. Simply put, the legislature can remove any judge, any sheriff, any uh, uh, constitutional officer. They can impeach anybody they want to other than another legislator. Nobody in the other branches, in the, in the, uh, uh, um, in the judge, in, sorry, the judicial branch or the executive branch, can remove a legislator from office. They can't remove them from office. Only, only the legislature can remove people from office uh, uh, out there, can impeach people in the judicial and executive branch. Additionally, as well, the, exec the, the legislative branch has power of the purse strings. They control the budgets for the other two branches. If they don't like what you're doing, the legislature can defund you, remove you, do everything else. They can't, there is nothing, literally, the legislature can stop the judicial branch and the executive branch from even operating. The other two, unless they're using violent government force, not using legal wranglings and paperwork and whatnot, cannot stop the legislature from operating. In fact, it is illegal in Kentucky to arrest a legislator on their way to session. I don't know if you knew that, but it is illegal to do so. 
And so that is where there has to be a correction. They are not three co-equal branches of government. When you think they're co-equal branches of government, it gives you an excuse, if you're a legislator who thinks that, to do nothing, which is part of what just happened here. So anyways, so what happened there overall was you had a 4-4 vote, meaning it was a tie. So the contract ended up being approved. There was two Republicans that voted yes on that contract. It was Donald Douglas, Senator Douglas, and Representative Pollock. Both Republicans, and they both voted yes. What is worse, not just Douglas not knowing how government works, but what is worse is that Douglas recognizes that what California is doing is wrong, and we should fight it. Despite recognizing it, despite giving some pontificated, meandering long speech about how, you know, we need to unite or divided we fall or whatever, whatever, and how it's not just empty words and we need to do something, what does he do? Well, he votes yes. Essentially, him alone allowing the contract to move forward, a no vote by him would have stopped it, a vote that he at least gave some indication maybe he should have issued. What's worse is it isn't likely only one company uh, uh, responded to the bidding of this contract. Actually, we know not only one company responded to this contract. Earlier on, they asked if Kentucky companies applied to do this work and said this California company. And they said, yes, a few did. But then when they were pushed on why they didn't use them, the representative from the department that was trying to issue this contract said they didn't know why we weren't using Kentucky companies. Why not table the vote, a choice they had, until they get the answer? I mean, this was a million dollars from an HR consultant. Could it not have waited another month to approve it? So you could have gotten answers to why we're not using a Kentucky company. Instead, we're using a company from a state that refuses to do business with companies from our state. I mean, I guess this is just, you know, a million dollars in taxpayer funds going to an HR consultant. I mean, it's just a million dollars in taxes going to California to fund their government, I guess a million dollars just isn't worth the time of tabling and investigating why it's not being given to a Kentucky company. I mean, I guess the around maybe 60,000 or so at least in tax revenues that would have stayed here in Kentucky that are now going elsewhere uh, just isn't just isn't worth it to them. And I think this points to an overall issue. I mean, uh, we wouldn't be in this position if the legislature overall wasn't run by people that speak all these big words. And then when it comes time to actually put these words into action, they completely fall on their faces and fail because the legislators could pass a simple law. In fact, all conservative legislatures across the entire country could pass a law saying that if a state bans their government from doing business with us, that if another state bans their government from doing business with their state, then we won't do business with them. Do you think California makes exceptions when they issue this? No, they actually put their words into a policy. They didn't just say, we're not doing business with Kentucky. They actually created a policy saying, if that is a bid from Kentucky, the answer is no. If you're trying to travel to something in Kentucky, the answer is no, we're not paying for it. This is because they have convictions to back up their actions. And that's one thing about Democrat politicians. They are way more committed to doing what their base demands than Repu Republican politicians are. Our politicians are constantly seeming to be weak, corrupt, and principleless. While many Democrat politicians are 
Well, they're the same. They're corrupt and principleless, but they aren't weak. They have no problem doing whatever it takes to bend people to their will. Republicans don't even have the backbone to then act against them in self-defense. I'm not saying people need to bend to our will, but you should at least be able to put up a strong defense so you can be left alone. This has got to change. It's time to stop messing around. We have a country, an economy, and our lives are just falling apart. I mean, just over the last few days alone, I've had five or six people reach out to me looking for work from my companies this week. Something is changing. It's turning bad. And, and, and we don't even have uh, it conceptualized yet. And here we are, despite all of this, we have conservative politicians willing to, that, that aren't willing to just simply say the word no in a state like Kentucky and say, no, we're not going to send a million dollars to California so then they can come in and teach us about HR. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Kubretter Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll see you back here tomorrow, uh, hopefully at one o'clock. I know these have been a little bit later, um, just a little computer issues here or there, but we will see you back here tomorrow at one o'clock. Have a great rest of your day.